Hello and welcome to episode 10 of Why Comics. I'm Stuart Moraine and this week I was joined by Beast Hunting Battle Badgers creator Steve Sims uh, to put the big question to him, Why Comics? Uh, we talked for a couple of hours or so. Um, Skype dropped out partway through so there might be a slightly clumsy edit again in this one. Hopefully, you know, I'm better at it than I think. Um, but yeah, we shall see. So if there is a slight weird semen edit, that's what that was. Um, yeah, that's it really on the notes up front. Uh, I hope you enjoy listening to the show and I shall pass you back over to past me and past Steve and roll the theme music. Hello, Steve. Hello, Stuart. How's it going, mate? I'm not too bad. Yourself? Yeah, all good. All good. Good. You had a good day? Yeah, yeah. Not too bad. Been in the studio scribbling away, as I usually am during the week. It's the best kind of days. Yeah, yeah. You can't well, complain. Assuming you're scribbling away on something that, you know, <laughs> you oh, enjoy. If, if, you're, if you're drawing all day, then it's all good. There's plenty That's of it. other things you could be doing and thinking, I wish I was at home drawing. So. Yeah. <laughs> it's when you're sat there drawing thinking about drawing that well i mean about drawing something else that yeah i mean the amount of jobs that i did as a youngster trying to to get jobs in illustration so i'd either be sat there on the tills drawing on bits of paper or sat there in an office when i should be answering the phones just drawing on bits of paper so i used to get through till rolls age and be just do oh one. yeah yeah, I can might... say it now because I don't work there anymore. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I had like the equivalent of the bow tapestry going all along my tail. Just when you take out one of those tail rolls and just draw all the way along it, little sort of comic strips and things. That's it. Just scribbling caricatures of your co-workers, that sort of thing. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, there used to be a couple of us. We'd have a thread going where one of them just one of us would just leave it for the next one to carry on. Oh, wow, cool. We had like a little mini jam piece going. <laughs> oh, that's great. Yeah, then you have to hide it when the section manager comes around. I see. I wish I kept them, but I don't know where they all went. <laughs> I think because they're on tail roll, we just binned them in the end. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it was, it was nothing particularly that you want to publish. <laughs> it was oh. like quickly scribbled stuff on tail roll. <laughs> it could be the new comic format on the indie scene. Till roll be. comics. <laughs> yeah. Till roll zines, appeal to the hipsters. Yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> Comes on the roll. Yeah, taking it back to those days when everybody just used to make the little um, uh, comics on their printers at home and staple them and, you know, sell them at cons. Going back to like, uh, uh, what was that, late, ni- late 90s? Late 90s, early 2000s, early 2000s yeah. Yeah, the old Bristol con, everyone had their little printed out at home comics. and fa- They were great, those. Some really they were, cool there was some, just something about them. I know a few people who still do them. I mean, I kind of did it with the Jason Isaacs one, the first print run, except I got Andy to print them off at his work. Right. But, <laughs> yeah, they were just sort of, I even called it the uh, printed at home edition. Oh, that's cool. So, but yeah, just for shits and giggles kind of thing. So, but yeah. I, kind of, I kind of miss that, that sort of. Yeah, I mean, it's great now where we are now. It's like the grunge movement of comics. It was, yeah. But I mean, now that printing is affordable, it's great because people can actually produce indie stuff that can, can looks as good as the official stuff. 
yeah um, that's it i mean you can put it on the shelf next to a dc or a marvel and some of it you wouldn't know yeah that's right have the badges yeah. covered over or the company idents <laughs> yeah that i mean there was a definite difference between what people were doing on the indie scene and the official comics back then when it was printed out at home you know because yeah it, it wasn't in color it didn't look even sort of slightly glossy it was just photocopied but so that, that the was pages weren't always even. <laughs> yeah yes <laughs> yeah <laughs> staples are always slightly off center yeah but that was part of its charm wasn't it really it was yeah like i say that was that whole sort of comics equivalent of a grunge movement wasn't it yeah garage band of comics yeah yeah <laughs> but i suppose that sort of brings us on to the big question yeah. nicely i'm getting good at segueing these in yeah um, yeah so steve why comics um well like you say um the whole printer at home way of doing things that was a, a huge a, attraction for me because i love drawing love creative stuff but anything that you could do on the cheap was good for me because <laughs> you know if i wanted to do um animation or make little films that's all cool but you need a, a camera you need equipment anything like that but as a kid if if i could just grab paper and a pen and just draw away for hours telling little stories then it was so accessible that you know i, I just was well into it really so what sort of age were you looking at well as a kid sort of doing them was it i like think copying were you creating your own characters or first comics i can remember reading were things like wizard and chips and um the beano uh there was a comic called oink did you ever read oink at all i possibly did i it was a bit I like it, but i don't remember reading it if that it was sense. a bit like viz for kids yeah and it had um frank sidebottom was in there um that's right uh, yeah it was kind of your mother wouldn't like it that kind of thing um and I just remember loving the artwork in there because it was a bit irreverent, a little bit sort of um, indie style, even back then. Um, so that was a huge influence on me. And also there was a strip, I think it was in Wizard and Chip, something like that. And it was called Face Ache. Right. And it was a, a kid who could make his face turn into monsters and things and just went around frightening people. But the art on it was incredible. I think they've recently collected it into hardback books because the artist was fantastic. Oh, awesome. Um, so I, I used to try and copy that a lot. Um, and my, my bigger brother, he was into 2000 AD, Star Blazer, all that sci-fi sort of stuff, which the art in was just amazing. So I would just, you know, consume all of that, mainly look at the pictures rather than read it. I was kind of too young to understand what all the writing was about, but just absorbing all the pictures of it for hours yeah. on end. Yeah, 2080 always scared me as a kid. <laughs> yeah, oh, definitely, yeah. And the eagle as well, that used to scare me. The um, the main guy for both 2080 and eagle was like you had Tharg for 2000 AD I can't remember what the guy for the eagle was called but he had like the pointy ears and the green skin um but yeah equally pretty damn scary to a <laughs> I must have been like six or seven year old at the time to be fair there was something about Frank Sidebottom scared me as a kid as well <laughs> yeah he was pretty surreal and freaky it's just I look at him now and I'm kind of like, I don't get it but as a kid it was just, <laughs> I don't know whether it was that the head didn't nothing moved on the face kind of thing or yeah big staring eyes kind of unsettling sit in the voice 
So yeah. you could have easily make a great horror film with somebody as Frank Sidebottom. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. But and also with comics as well, like it's where all the cool pictures were. It's where the interesting pictures were. It was because in illustrated books for kids, um, the artwork would be amazing in, in most of the books I had when I was a kid. But in comics, it was so much freer and more creative. And, and obviously this kind of um, a little bit of an outsider movement. Yeah. So you'd, you'd have these weird and wonderful um, creatures and worlds and um, stories that you that you wouldn't find in normal kids books or even at a normal kids level. Because 2000 AD was definitely like aiming above most kids' ha- heads a lot of the time. Yeah, definitely. Even some of the Starblazer ones that yeah. were very adult in theme, if not necessarily an execution on some of them. But, but yeah, they were certainly questionable as whether they were kids. <laughs> yeah. But then saying that, um, as much as I was fascinated and I loved all this sort of more out there and and slightly teen stuff like 2000 AD my my real first love for comics was Asterix yeah it was I'm with you on that I had a copy of Asterix in Britain that was a like small pocket one I ordered from the school so about a yeah. five size and I carried that everywhere with me and beat the shit out of it <laughs> yeah yeah I had a hardback I got from a car boot sale a hardback copy of Asterix in the big fight and I just loved that book. I think I might still have it somewhere, but it's so beaten up. It's held together with sellotape and all sorts. Yeah, I'm not sure whatever happened to mine. It's probably my dad's lost somewhere. But <laughs> but it was just the colour and the movement yeah. that, um, that, that Gosnia and Adurzo had in those strips. Um, I just loved it. And also um, the big fight. It was about a big fight, even at that age. Yeah. I loved it stories that were about two goodies that were going out to to fight the bad guys and you know and they were pretty innocent dust-ups you know sort of puff and poof and you know like knocking romans over walls um but it was just full of so much energy and fun i said there was the weird thing about asterix and tintin that they were the acceptable comics that they'd have in the school library yeah yeah definitely Yeah, yeah i think it was because they came in book form rather than comic book form if you know yeah. what I mean. Yeah, there was even back then it was the this is a graphic novel. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, this is uh, European and it comes in hardback. Therefore it's acceptable for kids. <laughs> it's been translated. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. Some of the humor in Asterix though, I mean, I I have to admit I still didn't get some of the jokes till I was about 20 something and I read it and I was like, "Oh, that's a pun. I understand that now." <laughs> But as as a kid, I just looked at the pictures. But as I got older and reread them and reread them, there's so much in the writing as well as the um, artwork. I always mean to go back to Asterix. It must admit it's something that I never, I've never really gone back to as an adult. You're right. Yeah. So just, I'm not sure why, because like I say, I loved them as a kid. It's just. Well, I had this this thing where um, things like Asterix and Tintin. Uh, I kind of left behind into my teens because um, manga became a thing and I moved from loving things like, um, you know, Asterix and still loved Thundercats and Ghostbusters and things like that, even even as a teen, just because they were awesome. But when yeah. manga came along, it just had so much energy to it that I, I moved towards that as a real thing I wanted to absorb and learn from um 
and for years I, I studied things like Dragon Ball Z by Akira Toriyama um obviously Katsuru Tomo did Akira you know there's just amazing manga out there um but maybe about say five years ago just before I started doing battle badges actually I I went back and looked at Asterix because I realized that as much as I was learning from manga my characters and my artwork was getting a bit stiff I was I was obsessing too much on these sort of um, quite strong angular lines to get what I felt was giving it action when actually it was stiffening everything up so I went back to look at things like Asterix to try and bring in that squash and stretch that flexibility of character yeah so even though I kind of left it behind um when I picked up the book I was like this is what I'm missing in my work I need to go back to this um and ever since then I've, I've got just as much asterisk on my desk as I have any manga stuff yeah because I looked at I read that one you sent me the pdf of the, right. the one you did before Beast Hunter Mode I mean, oh the worm yeah, in the well yeah you can see the um manga influence in that very much yeah, yeah. I was trying to combine um, my my real sort of love of manga, but also uh, a huge love of Mike Mignola and Hellboy. Yeah. Which is strange because there's there's quite a um, uh, a stark sort of dark strength to Hellboy, yet the, in Dragon Ball it's very clean lines and there's lots of white space. So it's trying to mush those two things together and, and yeah. come up with some sort of middle ground. Yeah, no, I think, yeah, now you say it, I can see the Mingo thing as well. It's a, but yeah, but I mean, it's it's sort of worlds apart from, probably not worlds apart, but you know, it's definitely different. Different in, to Beast Hunter, Beast Hunter Battle Badgers. Yeah, there, there was a certain um, kind of melancholy or darkness that I liked in my work for quite a while with. <laughs> With um, Fire and Grimstone, the giant monster book I did before, yeah. it's basically like an old sort of black and white hammer horror movie where everyone dies at the end. Yeah. Uh, and then The Worm and the Well is this is based on an old um, northern folktale with this young hero who, spoiler alert, again dies in the end. <laughs> so it, it was um, it was I sort of sat down and thought I need to do something a bit more with a bit more energy, a bit lighter, a bit more fun, and where um, it can lead on to other things and not everyone dies in the end. <laughs> or do they? <laughs> or do they, yes. Or do they? I have to find out next year in book six. <laughs> but, but yeah, no, I mean, it's, like I say, the manga thing largely passed me by, unfortunately. I was just sort of wrong age. I went straight into the DC stuff and then superheroes and then... right sort of from that way into the indie or you know mainstream indie for want of a yeah. better term so like yeah. Yeah, Hellboys yeah. and image comics well, and that sort of thing I mean it was great in the um in the late 90s early 2000s when indie really started to grow and become a thing you know, I mean obviously you had the in indie boom through the mid 90s um but a lot of that I mean it didn't really gel with me a lot of that sort of like machine guns and boobs and so it was all pastiche of other things it's like young blood was very much x-men and yeah that yeah. sort of thing and that just seemed to be all in that sort of mold yeah i mean of... it was at, it was at that time in comics when i was leaning more towards manga and um things like usagi yojimbo 
Um, still loved the Ninja Turtles stuff because yeah, I do. That was still being produced like different stuff, even though it went to um, oh, was it Image at the time? I think they picked it up and they started to do some um, crazy different story where Donatello got turned into a robot and Raph got his face burnt off and things. I mean, it was interesting, but it wasn't you know like the old school Turtles. I said, um, Turtles have been through so many things since Mirage, haven't they? It's with the Dreamwave yeah. stuff and all that. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, the Dreamwave work was was really nice. That, yeah. Um, was it LaShawn Thomas, I think, worked on that? I think so, yeah. And he's recently popped up on Netflix with his own anime series called Cannon Busters. Oh, I've seen that advertised on there. Yeah. I watched as, it yet, but... as soon as I saw the trailer and saw the style, I was like, there's something familiar about that. And when it came up his name, I was like, that's it. He was the guy who did... The uh, the turtles for Dreamwave. Sick, because years later I discovered the turtles comics kind of thing. I read the UK reprints of right. the Turtles Adventures from Archie comics. Right, yeah. But yeah, I never were... actually tracked down any of the original Mirage stuff or that until they started collecting them. Well, I mean, as a kid, I loved the animated series. The, I did. Um, the TV series was brilliant, and then I remember one day going into Waterstones. Uh, looking for an Asterix book at the time, and I saw a collected um, print of the Mirage first 12 issues, and I said to my dad, like, what's this? It looks like someone's drawn their own turtles in Biro. And he he had a look at it and explained that it's what, you know, the cartoon was based on. And from that point, I was like, oh, these are the real Ninja Turtles. <laughs> you know, th- I could see from the pages there was so much energy and grit and it was like wow this is i mean the cartoon was cool but this is even cooler that's it because the movie never gelled with me because it wasn't it was kind of like the cartoon but it wasn't enough like it but then once i read the original east metal oh, yeah. stuff i yeah. was like oh that's what the movie was yeah and that's right a bit more kid friendly but yeah definitely i mean they took scenes straight from those original comic books and put them in that movie um and at the time i too was like well where's krang and rocksteady and all that lot but um, as soon as I read those original um, comic books and watched that movie again, I was like, no, nah, this film's awesome. Still is now. I love it. Yeah, definitely. It's It kind of got a paste in at the back, Turtles backlash towards the mid-90s. But Yeah, well, the, the thing with that first movie is it, it had the um, it had a, a quite slowish pace and a... a a certain atmosphere to it it wasn't completely wacky no that's it you know like the 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 color palette was slightly muted um it wasn't all garish and in your face and and eastman and laird when they said they were going to make a movie they said um we're gonna have to get it done by golden harvest because they know their kung fu side of things which was straight away with brilliant idea and then they said we're gonna have to work with a henson company which again is another home run. You know, you put those two together, you're going to get an awesome adaption of your your comic book. Well, that's it. There was a magic to those that even though you could, you know, if you look closer, you could see the actor's face in the mouth. Yeah. Or yeah. the puppeteer's <laughs> face in the mouth. <laughs> yeah. And when uh, I will take that a million times over the CGI ones from oh, the last yeah. two films. Don't even mention it. <laughs> so yeah. So they were just horrible. They were a horrible design of the turtles. Nice yeah. toys, but not nice to well, look at on. <laughs> I'm just see the thing for me. What really attracted me to the turtles was that um, in those in the Mirage books, in the ones that Eastman and Laird did, the first 
um, 12 or so, and then carried on through the series when they brought in other writers and other artists to have a go at what they did. There was this theme that um, they were outsiders. Yeah. They, they had to hide in the sewers. Um, Splinter was kind of their, their grounding factor. He was the person who taught them how to hide in the shadows, how to survive. But they really wanted to be to live like normal teenagers, but they couldn't because they were freaks and, yeah. and misfits. And so with the new movie, to take them and just make them into kind of big, um, weird looking, incredible hulks and have them somersaulting and, and through the streets and, you know, high fiving people. And it just it didn't have any of that. What, what was at the core of what made those characters interesting? Well, no, that's it. I think that's the mistake a lot of people make with Batman when they bulk him up, is that he's a fucking ninja. Yeah, that's but right. yes, he's built, but he's not built built. Yeah, that's why he's trained for so long. Because he's got to be you able to You have to be a certain himself. build to move the way Batman's supposed to move. And the same with the turtles. You sort of move the way they're supposed to move as ninjas. Yeah. Yep. If you're just a big, bulky fucking thing. Yeah, that's right. They're supposed to be like three and a half to four foot tall, um, able to slip in and out of the shadows, dart down alleyways, you know, quickly go down to the sewers. If they were like four giant, badass, incredible hulks, they could just walk down the street and not worry what anybody says. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, I mean, well, those those uh, films had the stink of Michael Bay all over them. So they yeah. did. I will say this. I enjoyed the second one a lot more than the first one. To go off slightly on a film tangent again. <laughs> well, I thought they got Rocksteady and Bebop spot on. I didn't. I thought they sort of got the tone a lot better. They yeah. seemed to have a clear oh. idea of what they wanted to do, but it was just a shame it came after the first one, so nobody yeah. cared to watch it. What they I mean, it still did. wasn't a great film. but well, they, they caught the tone of the cartoon brilliantly. Yeah. With, with Rocksteady and Bebop, with Shredder, with Baxter, um, and, and with Krang as well. But the Turtles themselves, still, they it just for me it didn't really work no but you know what's great about the turtles is they go through all these different versions and it's a new version for a new set of kids and no matter what anybody might say about destroying my childhood it's like i'll oh, be quiet you've still got your stuff there to go and read what's well, it and odw are nailing it with turtles at the moment they are they're doing a brilliant job anytime they allow uh, mateus santoloco to illustrate a turtles comic i am over the moon because that guy is an absolute master yeah and i mean they're just doing an amazing job of bringing in elements from all the different turtles lore yeah and putting it in a consistent story that hasn't to the best of my knowledge so far backtracked on anything no no they are keeping it very consistent and like you say they're brilliant um mixing in of things like the mute animals um the utrons from the mirage series then you get things like the um oh gosh I, i'm blanking on their name now the strange alien race from the um cartoon series oh uh, um neutronians was it yes that's it yeah yeah you got those guys coming in on their flying cars and, and everything seems to work together really well that's it and i mean even with now with bringing in the female turtle yeah. Even incorporating yeah. the thing from Saban, but obviously doing their own thing with it and doing it better. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. Well, I mean, the, the the goofy feeling of that whole Saban show that it was obviously um, at the end of its tether. when. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that show is what it is, but and it, it had yeah. some nice ideas in it. But <laughs> I'm sure there are kids out there that love it. 
know. Yeah, that's it. And I'm not one to shit on next <laughs> generations turtles kind of thing. Because like you say, there's always yeah. my turtles out there. It's not yeah. gone anywhere. So. See, because I um. I've got all the IDW stuff um, and I, I read it and there are bits of it that I really love. There are other bits I'm not too keen on, but I'm just interested to see what they're doing with it, really. Yeah, that's it. I mean, even when it's in a low point or, you know, I'm yeah. struggling with it a bit, it's still yeah. good. The only time I've really struggled with it, which I think, I mean, it's quite a big part of the story at the moment, is just the way that um, Splinter now runs the Foot Clan. Um, and the way that Splinter is written as a character, he just seems much more harsh and cold. And yeah. for me, he was always this guiding father figure who the Turtles would be out there on the street, supposed to be on a mission, pushing the envelope of what they should be doing. But when they got <clears throat> got back, even though they might get some discipline from Splinter, he'd always have those wise words. He'd always be a mentor type character. And so now for him to be more of this kind of almost vengeful um, foot clan leader it, it just seems a bit too cold for me yeah yeah i know i know i know what you mean i must admit i'm a few issues behind i haven't been really keeping up with it as much as i was i mean i'm sure it's all i'm sure it's part of the story they're telling that he has to go on this story arc where what he feels he needs to do with his responsibility to the foot clan he, he'll realize he's leaving behind his his sons and, and come back full circle to be what it should be but it's just for me with the old mirage turtles like i don't think splinter ever would have done that but then i've got my you know i've got my old mirage turtles <laughs> that's it that's the thing and it? it's sort of letting go of change yeah yeah I mean, just... did, did you ever read any of the um tales of the tmnt i've read a few not as many as i would have liked to i'm gradually sort of going back through all the old turtles stuff and picking it up piece by piece kind of thing the guy who was was kind of in charge of that steve murphy he was also uh, the writer on a lot of it and he um you know in the archie comics the writer was uh, um was it dean elaine or something like that or dean claren i think possibly i'm honestly not sure to be honest but, at that age that, i wasn't really paying attention to the <laughs> but that that was um that was steve murphy under a, a different name so he oh, wrote right. all those as well but um, he's such a brilliant writer. He would bring in all these sort of um, uh, slightly political, slightly eco stories and, and mix it with all old mythology and strange um, tales from around the world. He, he just knew his stuff. So you could bring in all these bigger parts of the turtles world and just plop these four main turtle characters into it and have them encountering, um, like, say, the golem from Jewish folklore or Tengu from the Japanese folklore and things like that. And he just, he was one of the best Turtles writers. Yeah. So good. So with like Turtles and that, was that a heavy influence on deciding to go with Beast Hunting Battle Badgers? Oh yeah. Oh, definitely. Yeah. I mean, there's there's (laughs) that in it. And I can see the Yusagi Yojimbo warriors on a quest. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's like my main loves, the things I've collected um is obviously ninja turtles i've got like a whole mirage collection of that usagi ajimbo i've always followed stan's work uh, i love that um i'm a big fan of fantasy and dungeons and dragons and obviously like i mentioned like asterix was one of my main influences for me it was taking those four things and squeezing them all into one one main idea 
and then slapping a, a West Country creature on it. <laughs> sort of looking out the window and thinking, what kind of sums up me, where I'm from, and and like the kind of creatures I like. And there's just a, a, a badger snuffing around in a back garden. You think that's it? The guy's that guy looks like he could take someone in a fight, but is also really cute and approachable. That's it, because badgers are twats, if you've ever got close enough to one. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, they, yeah, they'll take a finger. <laughs> but also they've got the um, they've got the markings on the eyes, which instantly looks like they've got these headbands on, you know? Like they, yeah. So they, they already look like they're little warriors out on a quest. Yeah, it's um, the, the gift that keeps on giving, really, aren't they? <laughs> Yeah, artistically. Yeah, they they are awesome. I I just um and also I I started to draw one. I I was on holiday somewhere I think, and I started to draw one in my in my sketchbook, and I realised that the shape of this badger as he stood on his hind legs, it reminded me of Obelix, and I was like, and, and it just started to come more and more natural. Is in my head I was thinking, right, these these guys are like big furry Obelixes going off and having a dust up. And it just seemed to come so much more natural than like all the other characters I've done in my sketchbook, which never really go anywhere. I love it when that happens. When yeah. you've just got a character that you, or a design for a character that you just can't get out of your head. Yeah, yeah. I had this idea for a character before who was like this little um, warrior dude with a Viking helmet and he'd carry around a big um, pot on his back, like a cauldron. And he would um, he'd get into the cauldron every night and it would give him magic powers, and then he'd go off and do another adventure. And I wrote out all this backstory and all these different ideas, and I sat down to draw it, and I, I realised that I'd created too much weight for myself to try and tell the story I wanted to. I'd sort of, like, created all this baggage that it just ground to a halt. But when you get a character which you start to draw, and then it starts on a small premise, and as you draw him, it just grows from there, that's when you know you're onto something yeah that's it and it's just it's such a wonderful idea as well i mean i missed picking them up from you at true blues and then picked it up from you at sarah harris's event in swindon oh that's right the, yeah i think i bought was it three issues you had out then yeah yeah that's right and yeah i bought all three off you and binge read them all as soon as i got home <laughs> and awesome. then spent the rest of the evening drawing beast hunting battle Badges. that's right yeah you sent me that picture that's, that's right the, that's the first bit of battle badges fan art i've ever had i think but they're such fun to draw though yeah well that's the thing um when you sit down and think okay i want to do a say four issue or six issue arc it doesn't seem like that big a project but it is you know yeah. like you're going to be because I work on it one day a week it's going to be pretty much one issue every eight or nine months and then you think at the end of that nine months to a year you've got your first issue done and you think oh that was quite a lot of work Uh, but if your characters are fun to draw the second issue just comes really naturally and before you know it you're you're heading straight on into the third one because the characters just move and act naturally and it comes out while you're drawing you know yeah well that's it I think a lot of people for one forget don't realize quite how much work it is to do an issue and two it's one thing to do a really awesome looking one-off drawing yeah if you've got to keep doing that yeah it's, it's when people um 
who say you might be inspired by the X-Men and you think, okay, I'm going to have a team of five dudes and they'll all have six machine guns and 20 pouches and one will have all these extra bits. You think, yeah, they look cool on that pinup, but you try and fit them into panels and you're just going to give up after a while, unless you're Jim Lee or some kind of, you know. But even Jim Lee had that thing about Batman, wasn't it, where somebody complimented him on it, and he was like, yeah, I just wish I'd not drawn all the tread on the boot, because now every time you see the bottom of the boot, (laughs) I have to draw it all. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And also with Spidey as well, all the the webbing on the the clothes and shooting out all that webbing, having to draw the detail on that. She's like, why didn't I do it like the 60s cartoon shit? (laughs) (laughs) They just didn't even bother. Yeah. (laughs) Well, it's why um, I really love uh, things like Bone. Have you ever read Jeff Smith's Bone? Yes, I absolutely love Bone. Again, that was something that sort of came to mind when reading Beast. It always sounds like I'm being insulting when I say that, but... (laughs) (laughs) No, no, it's all good. But this reminded me of something else. But no, it was sort of... (laughs) And I, I will completely hold my hands up. Best. Completely hold my hands up that uh, I put as much of what I'm influenced by in my work as possible. It's kind of the, just a massive love letter to all these things that have helped keep me sane and fill my brain with cool, fancy stuff. <laughs> it, I mean, you've got all of. I've always, you know, nothing's truly original anymore, kind of thing. And yeah. again, that sounds like I'm. <laughs> well, the <laughs> thing you know, is. I'm, you know what I mean? And if you do it in that loving way where you're like, yes, I was clearly influenced by. Yeah. Well, like right, my main big influence, obviously, is Ninja Turtles. The first issue of Ninja Turtles was a parody slash love letter to um, Frank Miller's Daredevil. Yeah. Even And in the front front page, it says thanks to um, like Frank Miller and Jack Kirby. And the like the design of the cover is is aping Daredevil shots and things like that. So they created that as a love letter to things they like. So for me, it, it's always been, yeah, it's a cool thing to do. Why not? So much creativity can come from it. That's it. And like I say, if you're doing it as a love letter rather than a, oh, I really like what they did there, I'll rip that off. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of thing. Then it's two completely different things. And well, also, um, as you go along with it, it may grow into its own thing more. It may grow its own identity, you know, coming from that origin of being very strongly influenced. But it's the energy you get from being influenced by it that lets you create that early work. That's it. It's it's a spin on the Steve Martin thing about writer's block, about just steal a sentence from a book you love. Of course, yeah. Go from there kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So yeah. I think his rule is you can steal up to six sentences before it becomes plagiarism. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's like, and even if you're caught, there's very little jail time. <laughs> <laughs> but going back to um, Bone, the reason why I bring Bone up is those main characters the, um, that he's drawn are such simple little line drawing characters, but you follow them through the pages of this epic and then you you suddenly realise how intricate and detailed the world is around those simple characters. Yeah. It's, it's like this rolling stone that gathers all this moss. And then at the end, you've got this massive boulder that's full of all these different things growing off it. And that's like a huge, another big influence for me is, is when I first read Bone. And I thought, oh, this looks like uh, peanuts or, um, you know, something in the funny papers. 
And then all of a sudden you're halfway through, you're about 700 pages in and you're like, this is like Lord of the Rings. <laughs> and this is really quite dark in places. As well. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. And it can emote so much um, well, emotion through these simple lines, which is, that's, you know. I said it's one of those things that you look at, you're like, that's really easy to draw. But that, to actually draw it with the same amount of expression that he puts into it, just a simple stroke kind of thing. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, and Stan Sakai is the same with his Usagi Yojimbo. Yeah. It's really simple, clean line line art that after a while you start looking at all this detail in the background and you realise the um, the research he's gone into for drawing the buildings and things. But the main character is a very simplified um, character design, but it's easy to um, show emotion through that. It's easy to show movement through it. And after a while, you just get into the rhythm of his drawing, where it's almost like he's he's writing rather than drawing because of the brush strokes. It's just this kind of um, almost like calligraphic way of drawing. It's just brilliant. He's an absolute master. Yeah, yeah, one hundred percent. It's uh, like I say I love all that quest stuff anyway. But so I was because Bone was one that I Andy got me into. I was kind of, it was one that I looked at, and for the reasons you said, it was kind of, uh, it looks a bit basic. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm, in, I'm into more of this stuff with the muscles. <laughs> yeah, sure, yeah. No one's been shot or beheaded yet. What's going on? <laughs> and it came as a surprise, because Andy was really into Spawn at the time as well. Right. Oh, so interesting. So polar opposite to that kind of thing so in artistic style. Yeah, definitely, yeah. So I was like, why are you even recommending this to me? And that's what sort of made me, I was like, well, if he loves Spawn, but he's recommending this, maybe I should check it out. And then I bought that big doorstop paperback yeah. edition yeah. a few years later and actually read the whole story. Because, again, that was one I could only pick up in odd issues rather than... Yeah, we were, I think everyone was the same. Everybody was like, this looks pretty cool, but this is issue, you know, 37. And they've only got a few back issues of the rest. So it was almost like there was no real entry point until that big doorstop came out. And then you're just able to consume it. It's such a beautiful book as well. And the art of Jeff Smith's Bone book is a beautiful book as well. Yeah, yeah, definitely. But, but yeah, so with Battle Badgers, talking about people who go in with a plan is do you say six was the last issue or well the last yeah. issue of this arc or? the last issue of this arc uh is book six when i've got that done and i sit back with that story in front of me and think oh i actually did it you know <laughs> to, yeah. to be sat sat with you know like my plan for book one and think okay over the next five or six years i'm going to get these books done to actually be at the other side of it and think oh, okay i did that what now that's when I'll maybe start looking at the next story arc, or it could be that I look at it and think, whew, that was a lot. I'm not doing that again, yeah. <laughs> which is pretty unlikely, I think. Like like you say, that the, when you get a character that comes so easy, or a couple of characters who come so easy, it, it's hard not to want to just keep drawing them, really. Well, that's it. And if you as the creator were like, I really want to see where these characters are going next. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I have got a lot of extra world and folklore and stuff to tell which I don't want to force into the first arc because it doesn't need to be there I want it to be something I can bleed into and expose and reveal as it goes on slowly sort of drip feeding really that's it you don't want to make that mistake that 
a lot of franchise films in the 90s used to do where it's like just chuck everything in the first one we'll worry about the sequel later kind of thing <laughs> yeah <laughs> and it's yeah and well, i think a lot of small press people fall into that to a certain degree as well the ones that sort of disappear after a couple of issues i think because they try to do so much straight away yeah kind of paint themselves into a corner i think it's um i think when you put so much folklore and history and all, so much baggage into your early issues when you get to say issue three or four everything you do has to tie into that baggage yeah and you're creating weight for yourself so if you can keep things tripping along quite simply just adding extra elements as you go knowing that you haven't got a lot to pick up when you do the next few you know i mean even with battle badges i've tried to keep it pretty simple but there are story points and plot bits i want to hit and even now i'm looking back over just the you know few that i've done and thinking okay that's got to work with that and i make sure that makes sense and that's even with a simple tale so yeah if you're trying to be the next alan moore and go into that kind of crazy out there detail you're gonna tie yourself in knots <laughs> well, that's it or you look at something like hellboy where there's so much world in that but it's been running for so long now that it's justified yeah, that's right. I think a lot of people are like, there's yeah. so many great ideas in Hellboy, I'm going to use all that sort of stuff in this one issue. Well, what um, what Mignola does brilliantly is he starts with a wandering character who, um, as he goes along, is visited by all these sprites and spirits and demons and things, which kind of come and bother him. And it's up to him what is inspiring him at the time when he's writing. You know, he might want to put in a bit of Lovecraft or you might want to put in some Edgar Allan Poe or some old Norwegian folktale. But he can just inject that into his main character as his character wanders through a, a wasteland. Yeah. That's it. I think well, it's about sort of putting the time into world building, isn't it? Which he does brilliantly. I mean, that's it. Absolutely. Absolutely love his storytelling. It's another good thing that when you say, like, why comics? For me, with comics, it's a medium where, unlike any other medium, unlike uh, video games or movies, when you're reading a comic, as the reader, you kind of get to set the pace yourself. Yeah. It's up to you how quickly you go through those panels. So with Hellboy, for instance, somebody could sit there and read those panels and and read each one quite slowly and really pick up this melancholy, slow wandering character. Or if they want, they can skip through that quite quickly and focus on him just, you know, to dust up with a big creature. Yeah. So you can get two completely different readings of the same story that way. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I always got, as a kid, got so much out of comics. I've said before, they sort of helped me not learn to read so much as learn to enjoy reading if that makes yeah. sense yeah yeah definitely and um also used them to teach me to draw yeah yeah whether that was good or bad is up to the audience to decide. <laughs> <laughs> oh we we're all of us every artist at every level is still learning still practicing everyone's got people that they look at and think oh, i, I want to be as good as them it's just the way it goes. Even even people that do incredibly accomplished and detailed art, they can look at simpler stuff and think, I need to simplify my work. You know, That's it. There's always something new to learn and pick up. I'm, say I'm gradually learning that as I've well, gotten a bit more serious about drawing over the last couple of years. 
I think the first con I ever did was in um, a hotel in Exeter and, and I was sat down, I was placed next to Henry Flint who draws Judge Dredd and um, Zombo and things like that. And I saw these just beautiful, intricate, really detailed bits of art. And he leaned over and looked at my quite simple cartoony stuff and he said, oh, that that's what I need to do. I need to be moving more towards what you're doing. And I'm sat there thinking maybe in like 10 years I'll be anything like what he's doing. It just goes to show that, you know, no matter how much time you put in or what where you think you are with your eye, you'll always look at someone else and think, you can see the the benefit of in what's in their work you might think's missing in yours. That's it. There's always something small that you can steal to use for yourself that works. Or not steal, but you know. <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah, just you know, a different right technique or a different way of else. approaching. <laughs> but that's what it is. I mean, that's where you see influences in people's work, kind of thing. And it's because you can buy all these how-to books, but at the end of the day, it's doing and watching. Oh yeah, definitely. Which is why. Um, Lorenzo's how to draw book is so great because it's not saying you need to do this you need to do that it's kind of saying have a look at what I'm doing and just take a little bit of this a little bit of that and just how to think when you draw rather that's than, it that's that yeah. whole thing is those books are genius and the, when he puts them online it's genius because it is like you say it's not the how to it's the how to think yeah yeah definitely and, and no one sits down and consumes a whole how to draw book from cover to end and then sits down and thinks, right, I'm going to do exactly what that book told me. Everyone, no, that book's great. I often go to that for like if I'm trying to draw vines or rock or something like that. Definitely. And then I don't do it exactly as it is in it, but it gives me the kickstart I need. To, yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's the seed planted in your head to how to think when you approach something. It, it, it's just brilliant. Really good. But bloody Lorenzo. <laughs> <laughs> he's great though he's, he's become this kind of king of the indies and we all look at him and think you know like maybe one day we could be doing that ourselves well, i mean in- to be fair they put the work in over the years oh, didn't yeah. they because it was a good I, 10 years before they hit the point they were at well i, I met them first in uh, bristol con it must have been late 90s maybe 98 99 or, or maybe even early 2000s but going back to saying about printing out your own little comics and stapling them and things like that. They had recently done Malcolm Magic, one of their very early um, characters. Yeah. And they were kind of self-binding or they they had a, a, at that time, affordable binder to put together a graphic novel. And I just remember seeing their work then and thinking, these guys are just, you know, that extra level. That, extra, that bit more interesting than the mainstream stuff, that bit more professional than most of the cool indie stuff. But there was just this spark of genius there. What's it? I mean, even in the, what, they've been coming to Troops for three or four years now. But even in that short space of time, it's just the roller coaster they've been on. Because they were sort of just on that cusp of, you know, hitting not the mainstream but you know becoming really well known on the circuit kind of thing yeah yeah and um yeah just in that short space of time they've blown up they're like well it's it's wicked that they've blown up doing it indie style because you know they were indie through and through they they tried to do mainstream stuff but the thing that's been their massive success is here's all the cool stuff we do for free but if anyone wants to pay for it you can and everyone was like yeah sure we'll pay for it we'd love it printed out in hardback because it's awesome 
And that's how you that's how you know you make a massive chunk of cash like they did. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know it's barely scraping by. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it's cool. I mean, it, it's inspiring again. You know, the artwork's inspiring, but then also the way of putting it out there and making some cash off it is, is inspiring. That's it. I mean, they're doing everything the right way. Even if it does turn out they're cynical money grabbers, which I don't think is the case. But. <laughs> I, yeah, I mean, just from talking to them, you can tell that they're not. There's no cynicism in them at all. I don't think they're like, you know, they're just two balls of energy, aren't they? Really? That's it. I mean, I'm exhausted just having five minutes of talking to them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know how they do it. I really don't. I don't. Have you ever been to one of their workshops? I haven't. No, I, they have been on when I'm at cons. But when you're at con at a table selling books, you're aware there's all this cool stuff going on around you. But, you know, you're sort of stuck at your table, like chilling the moiching days. <laughs> yeah, they did one for free down at the watershed in Bristol a couple oh, of years oh. ago because they tore them around and they do them in schools as well, apparently. Yeah. But um, yeah, it was just amazing. It was the first time I met them. They'd signed, or no, second time I met them. I met them at Troops, and then they were coming to the summer one. Yeah. So it was sort of between. So I was a bit dubious about approaching them because you, you assume that people remember you, kind of thing. Yeah, sure. But and they did. They were instant, like you know, oh yeah, fucking all that. But the actual talk was amazing. I've never seen so many kids engaged in creating something. Yeah, I, I. A friend of mine works down at the library in Taunton and, and he has me down there in the summer at the end of the summer holidays to do workshops with the kids. And it's so nerve wracking. Yeah, <laughs> I'm so in a way, I'm glad, glad I hadn't seen the Everingtons do theirs because I'd be aware how like crap my little workshops are. But um, I mean, the kids are always enthralled and, you know, have a great time. But on the run up to it, I'm always like, they're not going to give a monkey's what I say <laughs> they're probably going to throw their pencils at me and tell me to get out of there you know <laughs> so yeah I always I'm in awe of anybody who can do it properly like they do I mean it helps that there's two of them they can feed off each other's energy yeah but even one on their own <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah it's true yeah it is true I mean when I've spoke to Robin if he's done a table on his own just speaking to Robin it's like you've got enough energy for both of you on your own how do you do it yeah because he's done the last couple of troops by himself because it unfortunately falls on the same weekend as lorenzo's birthday so right ah damn that's a shame so but but yeah he's just he's enough energy for one (laughs) (laughs) yeah (laughs) the other thing that i was uh everything i was thinking about with regards to why comics going back to the original question was um (laughs) When we were kids and growing up as a teenager, comics was the medium where you could do so much more than could be done on screen or in video games. It was the medium where you could you would see stuff on the page and you think they'd never put that in a movie. Yeah. I mean, not so much now because we've reached a point with special effects and filmmaking where you can have a horde of Marvel heroes versus a horde of Thanos's bad guys and you know doctor strange's weird other realms can be put on screen but back in back in the day when we were youngsters there was a limit to what you could have on the screen so you would read the comics for the real wacky intricate you know like out there stuff that's it and it was certainly when i was a kid i'm 
assume it was sort of the same, but the events in comics were nice little events. They were huge for what they were, but and now it just seems to be everything's an event and it's lost that yeah. magic. Yeah, I think they're really they're really struggling to um, to keep the attention on something because people's attention moves so quickly onto new stuff um, that they have to say that every week is the end of the world or the next comic is going to be the thing that shatters the universe. Or that. Yeah, I'm not even sure if it's that. I think people just now feel like, oh, I've dropped out for a couple of issues. I can't go back. Right. Yeah. I think that kind of puts a lot of people off or, you know, it's like, I've got to read how many books to get this complete story. Yeah. I think, I think generally the way forward with comics is to go back to single issues, just pumping out solid story, single issue stories. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And, um, I was doing that with with the first two I did worm in the well and Kaiju fire and grimstone. They were standalone books because when you're selling something at a table, it's so much more attractive to people if they know they haven't got to catch up or they haven't got to yeah. buy the next one. If it stands on its own, um, that is definitely a selling point. Well, I definitely think in small press, you need to have built up that audience and that reputation before you can be kind of like, this is going to be a six issue thing. It's going to be like one a year. Do you want yeah. to come on this ride with me? Kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. So, Whereas but, if you're kind of like, yeah, this is my first comic. It's going to be a 12 issue, you know, mega thing. It's going to come out every three months. And then it's like you never see that person again. Well, it's why with um, with when I thought I want to do a uh, a six issue story, I realised that it needed to be light, um, fun, and it needs to be tongue in cheek because you need people to get on board. And for me, if you see something from a distance and it's got a quite in depth title, or it looks like it's going to be too serious, and someone says, "Oh, it's my twelve issue story arc, and it's about." this um steampunk other world detective i mean that sounds cool but you just think that's going to be a really in-depth story it's going to be 12 issues i don't know if you're going to be able to actually finish it and i don't know if i want to buy all the issues whereas if it's something silly like with you know ninja turtles or battle badgers it's the kind of thing you see from a distance and think well that looks fun and good for a laugh even if i only buy one it's going to be a lot or a novelty if you know what i mean yeah and i think the thing you get right with the one is that even though it's not the complete story it's a contained enough story that or it might have an open end has an open end kind of thing yeah but it's not yeah. an unsatisfying one it's not like that you're like oh, if issue two never comes i will never feel fulfilled by this book sure i try to do i try to lean towards that monster of the week thing you know yeah. so in your issue you're going to have a dust up with some kind of creature and that's usually um shown on the cover you can see another beast that they're fighting um it's a good formula it's one that beast quest has been using for years it's one that you know like fancy has done for years before that you have your your basic hero your barbarian uh, or your wizard it's not really them you come to the story for it's what they're fighting that will make you yeah. pick it up some big like many tentacle beholder or a seven-headed dragon or something like that you as a kid you're drawn to that monster because you want to see how the hero whoever it is a lot of the time you still you just see them from the back so you're not that worried you, you identify with the fact that that hero could be you and it's fighting that massive thing that by all rights should rip your head off yeah that's it, I think, and there's just a beauty in that simplicity. 
of yeah. not overcomplicating and that. I think too many people chase the water cooler moment kind of thing. Yeah. Even yeah. in comics, people want that. Shit, I've got to go and talk to somebody about this kind of thing. But they're yeah. mistaking that for something huge instead of. Because like, after I'd read the first three Beast Hunters, I was messaging Andy as well. Like, Have you read them yet? They're fucking great. <laughs> Cheers. And, and you know, it sounds like I'm blowing smoke up your ass. But <laughs> <laughs> it's all right. Keep blowing. <laughs> So I'm horrible behind your back. But. <laughs> yeah. So I don't hear that. Sorry. That's fine. That's, that's my rule. You can say what yeah. you like behind my back. I don't care. Yeah, I've got selective hearing. It's fine. <laughs> but no, but it was just, And it's in that simplicity of the storytelling. And that simplicity sounds like a horrible compliment, but... No, that's fine. There's a genuine beauty in it. That's... That I, I think a lot of people overlook in the desire to build a world or... Definitely. layer in complex things for future issues that may or may not ever pay off yeah you def- definitely start simple and layer it as you go along i mean uh i always use the wrestling analogy there's always a massive pro wrestling fan as a kid as well um you just need a good guy and a bad guy the good guy has to win all the matches to get up to that bad guy and as he's doing that the bad guy just shouts more gets badder is more of a threat so that when finally that good guy meets that bad guy, you think that good guy's got a chance. And you, uh, during that fight, he may get his arse beaten, but at the very last minute, scores that pin, gets the title, and everyone goes, yay! You know, you you reach that that uh, conclusion. That a lot of the time, people can see it coming, but along yeah. the way, you throw obstacles in the way. And it's just a formula which pro wrestling has repeated for the past 50 years or whatever with slight changes slight costume changes and as soon as they try to complicate it too much as soon as they try to add too many um, extra interviews too many extra backstage scenes or props you lose your audience because really you're there for that predictability with those slight differences well so i mean i was the same as you i used to love like especially WCW and WWF it was at the time. Yeah, that's the stuff. And even with that, in that hour program, you'd have one match that was two named wrestlers fighting each other. But even those ones where it was like, it's The Undertaker versus Dave from the yeah, locker room. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. It's like, well, we know Dave's going to go down. Yeah, but it's about... But you still get weirdly invested into it, don't you? You do, because you know, it's, you know, that guy, Dave Smith from down the road, you know he's going to lose but you want to see your star elevated because he's on his path to go against another star who's also being elevated. So you're promoting these two elements that you know will finally clash, but along the way, that's when you can put in your little obstacles and your details. But the predictability is there. You know they're going to come together and have a a big dust-up at the end, and hopefully the good guy will win. It doesn't need to be complicated. That's it. I mean, my favourite wrestling thing was, was it Royal Rumble where there was about four of them in the ring? Yeah, yeah, the big old over-the-top Royal Rumble. And again, you'd have like 15 unknown wrestlers that just kind of looked like they'd wandered <laughs> in by mistake. <laughs> yeah. Just a guy and, in, a, in a pair of trunks kind of like, is this not the swimming pool shit? <laughs> and you knew that Hulk Hogan was going to win in the end. That's it, but when it got down to the last two, it was... Yeah, like, I know Hulk's going to win this, but at but, the same time, I'm really yeah. doubting it. Macho well, Man what, looks like he could take him. Exactly. The storytelling comes in, adding those little elements of doubt, but this time it might be slightly different. And that puts you on the edge of your seat. 
And then when Hulk wins again, you're like, oh, yeah, the champs won again. Brilliant. And then after that, some even bigger guy will come out the back and then they'll do the whole formula again, building up to him fighting that even bigger guy. And they just repeated it. I mean, they repeated it for five or six years with Hulk Hogan and made millions every year because it was fun, predictable, cartoonish storytelling. That's it. It's like as in the early 90s, one of my favourite wrestlers was Tatanka because he never lost <laughs> until they turned him bad. Yeah. For no yeah. real reason that I could ever see, but unless I yeah. missed an episode. <laughs> well, that was... I, that was around 93, 94 when Hulkster had gone and they moved away. They moved away from the formula and that's when it lost its interest. So, Yeah, I think that's about when I dropped off, I must admit. <laughs> but, um, yeah, Tatonka and Crush were the big ones then, I think. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> back in the day. Nobody I, remembers now. <laughs> well, I, I even, I remember picking up some of the old WWF and WCW comic books. Back yeah, in- I used to as well. And the... They used to do that nice prestige kind of magazine that was about f- three or four quid. Yeah. Which was like the equivalent of about eight quid now. Yeah. Yeah. But it was, it was glossy and had muscles. So we bought it. That's it. And that's my approach with battle badges. <laughs> <laughs> Have a glossy cover and get them flexing their muscles. People will buy it. <laughs> but, but that's it. But I mean, like you say, that wrestling formula works really well in comics as well. It's yeah. like... Um, I talk about it a lot, but the death of Superman issue, every time I read it, there's still part of me that's like, I know he dies at the end of this, but there's still yeah, part of me that's like, it might be different this time. Yeah, well, like, I mean, wrestling was inspired by, um, a lot of the time, superhero comics of the, the 50s and 60s. It was inspiring the wrestling industry and vice versa. When Hogan um, and the WWF in the 80s was massive, all the big sort of steroidy, muscly dudes also inspired by like action movies like Arnie movies and things that all inspired comics so it kind of all played off each other really yeah as it went along but yeah that death and return of superman that's your especially the death of superman that's your your pretty much your pro wrestling formula there you've got superman who's your champ who all the way through is being interviewed and just doing his his day-by-day stuff and doomsday is this slowly approaching bad guy who's getting stronger and stronger and stronger and then they just meet in the ring, which happens to be Metropolis, and have a massive dust-up. Well, that's it, because even in it, Doomsday's inspired to go to Metropolis because he sees an advert for is it a boxing oh, match right. or a wrestling no, fight. And that's wrestling what makes fight. him Yeah, so they, That's what makes him go to Metropolis. <laughs> yeah, that, that's their little sort of nod themselves, I bet, that, that that is kind of like, yeah, we know this is like a wrestling show, but it's kind of why you love it. <laughs> well, that's it. I mean, they never made any secret of it because a lot of people in the inevitable backlash against the hype of the death of Superman were like, well, it's not really a story, is it? It's like, well, no, it's not because it's the preamble to the story. Yeah. The story is Funeral for a Friend. Yes. It's yeah. the world dealing with the loss of Superman. See, I was never really into superheroes or capes or anything like that. But the story, two stories I did read at that time was Death and Return of Superman and Nightfall. Yeah. Because for me, the idea of a kind of fallen hero, I I love, always loved that. I've always loved it. When the character, when the hero falls, what happens next? You know, that's where I find that interesting in, in, a, in the stories. Um, also, why going back to the Ninja Turtles, they they kicked ass they could do anything they liked. they were so good with their skills but there was always this kind of like melancholy because they had to hide they had to stay away they had to stay underground so that they, they 
their potential was never really reached. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, I say the the superhero things was what really got me into comics. I got caught in that perfect storm of Death Return of Superman, Lois and Clark, and the Dirk Mags BBC yeah. Radio Superman. Right. Yeah. And that's what opened the door for me. And um, you know, remembering a childhood love of the Christopher Reeve Superman film. Yeah, yeah, I remember watching that when I was a kid. That I always, always, for me, um, the only Batman is the '60s Batman. <laughs> That's fair. Again, it comes back to um, simplicity, fun, you know, cartoonish action. Um, I was probably reading Asterix and then stopping to watch 60s Batman. <laughs> I used to watch 60s Batman to the point where I hated Tim Burton's Batman film without even seeing it. Right, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, now I love it and Keaton's yeah. my Batman. But <laughs> Yeah, that that is my, my second. First is Adam West and second is uh, Tim Burton Batman. Yeah, I mean, I did that thing that most moody teenagers do. I'm like, that's stupid. And then you get older and you go back to it. Like, Actually, there's a real charm to it. Yeah. I See, for me, I loved all the bright and colourful stuff, Asterix and um, Batman. That was what I grew up on. And that was like really the seed of my creativity. But like most people, I hit my teens and the darkness crept in. So it was um, The Crow and... Um, obviously like the death and return of Superman because he, he he died and Batman because yeah. he's a fallen hero and from there I went into the manga stuff because it, it was more adult and, and more dark but like I said earlier when you look back at that light colourful stuff you just see the real strength of it and you think there's no need to to leave it behind at all. No I mean I got back into Superman big time when I became a father yeah, I can totally see that. I know a lot of people that have said that. That icon, that kind of, almost like a father figure for, for the world, because he's just a protector. Well, that and the Jonathan Kent character as a father, when he's written really well. Right. It's, it's a wonderful role model father. Yeah, yeah. Well, I suppose it's, it's like me with Splinter. You're yeah. reading it, and the words of wisdom coming from the character, you're just like, oh, that, that really resonates. Yeah. He is the father, isn't he? It's yeah. Have you seen um, ideal dad that you want to be? You know. Have you seen the latest? Um, is it Shazam? You seen that film? Shazam. Yes, I have. Yeah. I I really really enjoyed that. I really enjoyed it. They could have shaved half an hour of it, and I wouldn't have missed it. Well, that's every modern film, isn't it? I, that's just this. Just you edit that because enjoyed it. There was a point. And then it went, and I went about the bit where I was like, oh, I'm getting frustrated. <laughs> <laughs> I just think the way they handled um, Shazam, he felt to me more like Superman than any of the other DC movies. No, I mean, you sort of, with Justice League towards the end, felt Superman was going in the right direction. But it was just kind of by that point, there was they were at point of no return with those movies. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, hopefully they'll they'll turn a corner now because they seem to be um, getting some good successes with the recent stuff. So we'll see. Yeah, since they seem to have given up on trying to ape Marvel. Yeah, because that was a big problem. They again rushed into building a world instead of laying yeah. the groundwork. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, definitely. Rather than just building it up brick by brick. But 
like I say, greed <laughs> <laughs> trumps creativity sometimes, I think. Yeah, yeah, it's true. We're, and they, did, they didn't have a guy in charge who understood comics. Yeah. They had yeah, a guy that's... in charge who'd read Watchmen and 300 and a couple of Frank Miller books and thought that's what comics are. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Well, I mean, I mean, with 300, you could just sit down with that book in front of you and you've pretty much got your storyboard to shoot from there. Yeah, that's it. It's, it's when things get a bit more complicated than that. Yeah, I mean, I think the big problem with his take on Superman was that he Watchmened it. Yeah. <laughs> he was looking at all these characters through the prism of Watchmen. Yeah, yeah. And it's like that's not what you want in a Superman movie. With with regards um, approaching storytelling and, and um, scripting and things like that, with your March of the Robots, did you sit down and write out a little idea of where you wanted him to go or did you just do it as a, a series of images which you tied together into a story? Basically how I did it, was because I did that as a thing because I've always said that I'm all right at drawing, but I can't do sequential art. Right. And then Andy talked me into doing the March of the Robot thing because I've got no real interest in robots. Ironically. Right. Okay. But, um, he sort of talked me into it. And then I was thinking about it. I was like, well, if I'm going to do it as, and it's meant to be a drawing challenge, I might as well challenge myself. And then I can sort of prove to the world that I can't do sequential art and people can yeah, leave sure. me alone about it. Kind of <laughs> Get off my back. That's it. Look, see, it's shit. But then as it was, but yeah, I had a basic idea of where I wanted to begin with him rebooting against the rock. Yeah. And I knew where I wanted it to end roughly. Originally it was going to be them reaching a rocket ship and going off planet. Yeah. But as I was going on, I liked the idea of he met the little robot. And I liked the idea of it was a family of sorts coming back together. Oh yeah. That's cool. So, and I did it that I didn't name them or anything like that, or, you know, say whether yeah. it was a he or a she kind of thing. Yeah. And then I thought, then the person who's reading it can sort of create your own adventure kind of thing to the sure, point where, because yeah. when I sent it, I was sending it to a friend as well, and she was reading it, and she was like, oh, what are your robots called? And I was like, I didn't even bother to name them, but I kind of like the idea that they don't have a name. The yeah. person reading it can put their own names onto them if they want to. Yeah, sure. It was like with um, Fire and Grimstone when I did that. I, I just wanted it to be a, um, a series of images with these two mysterious characters uh, that come together and have a big dust up. But really, it's up to the reader to put on why they're there, what they're called, you know, all those extra bits. Because that's that's half the fun with with imagery a lot of the time is an image doesn't tell you anything other than what's drawn there and you you can't help but fill in a lot of the background yourself well that's it and because i knew i wanted it to be wordless i wanted it to be a simple thing so it is a simple robot goes on a long walk yeah kind of thing yeah. and you don't know why or what or and there's i wanted it to be enough that it was a basic cohesive story but that there was enough there that people would put their own stuff into it because that's what i used to love about comics as a kid yeah it's because you wouldn't get the complete story generally as a kid because you'd miss an issue or you'd miss a couple of issues or whatever uh -huh. so you would fill in the blanks yourself yeah and inevitably yeah. the actual thing was never what you build it up to be in your mind when you actually did get to read it eventually yeah when you finally get those back issues and you think oh they they didn't go where i thought they were going to go and it sort of it would have been better if they did what i did <laughs> so i mean i've got a rough idea of like how the robot got there and what that's all about but i don't ever want to say it kind of thing yeah it's not something yeah. i ever want to go into so it's it's, a it's good... for the, the reader to kind of 
project their own story onto kind of thing. It's a good way to approach doing like your first few stories is rather than sitting down with a sketchbook and drawing different stuff, just draw the same thing doing something else and then something else. And after a while, you realize you've got, say, 50 or 60 pictures, which work together as a little narrative, just moves on through the book. That's it. And then, yeah, I was just letting it sort of play out from day to day kind of thing. A couple of times I knew what I wanted the next the next day's page to be yeah, kind of thing. But for the whole most part, it was free flowing the creating the stories I went kind of thing. Cool. So and I've got an idea for a second one. Which I was I'm... just about to say, what, what's next? You've been bitten by the bug now. Are you going to? Yeah, I'm going to do it. Like I say, this was always just a thing to post online. It was only that, you know, enough people egged me on to get it printed kind of thing that I follow through on it. I just really enjoyed it. So even if I end up with a stack of them that I can use as firewood one day, <laughs> <laughs> I've, well, I've enjoyed the experience of doing it. And yeah. It's, I actually finally did something I never thought I'd do and created a comic. Yeah, or, definitely. With the mini one, I created two comics this year. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's better to sort of sit there and look back and think, oh, well, I created it, rather than sit sit there and look back and think, I never made that thing I wanted to. No, that's it. And it's like, when I do the second one, I want it to be a separate story with different characters. The second, the idea for the second one is it's like a Western. Oh, cool. So I've been... Messing around, I've actually done a little sketchbook this time where I've done different designs for robots that I may or may not use and drawn different westerny kind of landscapes that I may or may not use, kind of thing. Yeah, sure, yeah. And just it'll all be it'll all bleed out from those main little characters that you're interested in, like we were saying with the the badgers, you know, you, you just keep drawing these characters and then the story sort of tells itself as you go along. That's it, and it's like I say, it's just for my own amusement, and if other people get something out of it as well, yeah, it's not like there are people's livelihoods riding on me drawing no, stuff or anything. No. So. <laughs> yeah, it's just, just something to tinker away at, keep you sane, keep you it's off not, the keep you off the streets and the drugs. <laughs> it's not like my wife's like, "How are we going to feed the kids if you don't do this next comic?" <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So but, I can enjoy it. There's no pressure on it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, that, I mean, so much about. Um, creativity and drawing and and uh, is about trying to get rid of that pressure of everything else and just being free and having fun with it which well, I think for a long time I was buying lego and I find lego really relaxing to build yeah and I think that's where I, the obsessive buying all the different pens and that came in because I started, found that was a nice alternative to doing the lego it takes up less space in the house and it's probably cheaper. Lego is not it's, cheap. Well, I don't know with the pens. But... Oh, that's true. Yeah, yeah. Swings and roundabouts there. But it, it seems to piss the wife off slightly less than the Lego <laughs> everywhere. So. Yeah, yeah. You may but, be drawing, but at least I'm not stepping on bits of Lego every five minutes. That's it. And I just find it so relaxing. Yeah, no, it is. It, it definitely is. I think as well, it's, um, it's good to get into the habit of sitting down and drawing and creating something and getting relaxation from that rather than giving into the the very easy thing that we all do which is i'll go down the shops and buy something yeah you know, that retail therapy is great but at the end of the week you realize you spent half your money and you've got nowhere to keep all the stuff that you've bought and you shouldn't have spent it at that's least... it it's, it's usually followed by buyer's remorse and <laughs> it is if you sit down and create something even if it's not the best thing you've ever done, you think, okay, I've, I've done that. I've either learned something from it, as in I need to do something better, 
or I'm happy with it and it's stoked the fire enough for me to do something else. So either way, it's it's good, it's productive and it leads on to the next thing. That's it. Every single, like I said earlier, every single thing, is an, it's an experience. It's, it's yeah. a chance to either hone a skill or learn a new skill or just try something different. Yeah. And looking at other people's art as well is always a great thing, you know, just to inspire and keep that energy going, seeing what other people are doing, um, seeing different styles of art. You know, I mean, obviously, if all you do is look on DeviantArt and see all the amazing artists out there, sometimes it just deflates you. But Yeah, I've said to Andy before, I'd love to see a professional, say like a Jimny or somebody, for example, put out, post a picture and be kind of like, I fucked the leg on this one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just to make you feel a little bit better about things. Because you know yeah. they do, they just obviously never share it. Because yeah, they, right. they've got a lot more yeah. riding on their fuck-ups than we have. <laughs> But I mean, like a friend of mine's really into Jim Lee and he spends so much of his time looking at the art of people like Jim Lee and then looking at his own that he's kind of crippling himself because he's thinking I'm never going to be as good as that. When instead, if he just looks at what he's actually producing and finding something that's more inspiring to him, you know, with regards to finding a different style that's easier rather than just trying to jump and do a Jim Lee, find some sort of middle ground that's easier to latch onto and learn from. That's it. I mean, it's learning to be like, I'm never going to be as good as that, but I am going to be as good as this. Yeah, definitely. And I'm going to keep building on this kind of thing. And that's Um, the mindset to get. And it's learning to actually, because again, Andy was like a pusher for me. So a big thing he did for me was sort of being like, you know, it's cool you post your pictures online, but stop telling people what's wrong with them. Because <laughs> I'm always an instant steal the thunder kind of guy. So it's like, oh, I right. did this picture of Batman. I fucked the ears up, though. And look at them legs. What a prick. Yeah. It's all right. I've already given myself a black eye. You don't need to. That's it. It's kind of, <laughs> so anybody comes on, is like, oh, shit, he knows. <laughs> but the thing is, like, if, if everybody drew like Jim Lee, you just have shelves full of the same looking stuff. And a lot of the time certainly in the 90s everything did kind of look the same in the mainstream comics but that was when i was looking for the different stuff because it's it's the different stuff it's the quirky it's the weird it's the slightly flawed that draws my attention like one of my favorite um turtles artists is jim lawson i don't know if you've ever seen his work but it's got this it's that strange quirky almost um jack kirby ish but it's He's just got his own way of telling a story with these like uh, brilliantly um, detailed but slightly wacky characters. And it's just so inspiring. You can see that when he sits down, he's so free with his brushwork and so free with what he puts on the page that he's just trying to tell a story. He's not laboring over every little bit. He's not worried if it looks like a you know, Jim Lee masterpiece. But what he's worried about is telling that story in a way that you can consume it and move across that page freely and fluently. So it just goes in and it's fun. That's it. And I mean, the whole thing's so subjective anyway. Somebody's art that is considered great may not be to my taste. It doesn't mean it's not great. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, definitely. Um, There's a guy who works for 2000 AD, uh, Clint Langley. His work is incredible. It's... um, I think it's mixed media, like painting with photos and he does slain and robo warriors. And it's amazing. You could put every one of his panels on the wall as a piece of art. But with regards to it flowing across the page, 
for me, there's so much there. It's it gets too static. It's too much. So I find that sometimes with Alex, Alex Ross. Right. Amazing. Yeah. Amazing yeah. painter. Amazing what he does. But sometimes when it's in a sequential book. Yeah. It feels a little bit like somebody's just stuck words on a painting kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. You're it's, looking like you say it's missing that fluidity. Exactly. You're looking for that fluidity. You're looking for that pace in the page. And when there's that much going on, you want to just focus on that painting and then flick to the next one. And it's brilliant and it really is amazing work. But after a while, you realize you're only four pages in when really you wanted to flow along with the energy of the story and the pace and really get into that um, action. That's it. And at the same time, for somebody else, they're like, this is flowing in a completely different way to any other comic ever has for me. It's, the motion of it's beautiful. And it's, it's like I say, it's all in the perception of the person reading it. Yeah, yeah. And and you need that variety and you need those different styles because that's what makes comics so interesting. That's it, 100%. And that's why they're for everyone at the end of the day. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I, I heard your interview with um, Sarah, uh, who did Malt, Sarah Dunkerton. Yeah. And she said for comics, it, why comics? Well, because it's freedom, because it's about anyone can tell a story anyone can put their stories down in their style is freedom to do what you want to do in your style and be creative and as much as you can do that people will see it when they come to your work they'll see that you've had the chains taken off and it comes through in what you put on the page no matter what your style is that's it it's like i say it's like you say it's it is that freedom that and I think that's what comes across and that's what people engage with. And, you know, it's not going to appeal to everybody. No. It, no. There's always going to be a small minority or whatever that it doesn't appeal to. But the cool thing is now we live in the internet age where everything is about small minorities. Everybody's yeah. got their own little group, their own little bubble that they live in and they they consume what's happening in the world through that little bubble it's great because we're all sort of connected, but we're also all divided into our little groups and everyone's got their own differences and their own things they like. So it kind of it encourages that thing of just do what you want to do, that you will find your little group that appreciates it. That's it. And I mean, that's the beauty of the small press scene as it is at the moment. Is that yeah. there's such, such a broad scale of style and creativity and story. Yeah, and theme and everything. It's it's genuinely yeah. exciting to be part of at the minute. And there's some amazing. Well, there's lots of amazing stuff out there. You know, like obviously, Mulp and um, is it Samurai Slasher? Have you seen that one? Yeah, the um, it's Mike Garley, isn't it? Samurai yeah, Slasher. yeah, Samurai Slasher. Um, there's just so much cool creativity out there that when you go to a convention you don't necessarily know what you're going to see, but when you see it, you'll see something that just really resonates with you and you'll be like, okay, that I'm on board with that. That's, that's it. That's no two tables look the same kind of thing. It's not, yeah. Yeah. It's, like I say, it's a genuinely exciting thing to be a part of. It's just a shame that it's not. I felt for a while we've been on the cusp of breaking through. It's just finding that way to, but then if we break through, is it going to lose some of that magic? I know. Yeah. I think, I think, sometimes you just have to realize it is what it is and just 
love it for what it is. Try not to push it to be anything more and just hope it becomes nothing less. Just realize that what it is is something you really like and care about and is worth putting energy into. That's it. I mean, that's what I said a little while ago in the mail about True Believers is that, you know, I'm happy. I love where it is and what it is. And it's not the biggest con. It's not the smallest con. We don't get no disrespect to the guests we get, but we don't get the, you know, big rock star name guests kind of thing. And I'm really happy with that. So I think we're more about that small press community. Yeah. Yeah. You you get the creativity there. It's absolutely packed with creative people showing awesome work. That's it. And as as long as people are happy to be a part of that, it's exactly what I want it to be. And I don't think I want it to be the thing where I am chasing big name guests well, just for the sake of well, because being it's able to a, stay open another year kind of thing. Because it's pretty much full of creators, it tr- attracts more creators and it attracts people that appreciate what they create. So it's kind of self-perpetual, really. That's it. I think, I mean, well, it's a different podcast to sort of go into the issue with certain guests. Right. <laughs> it's Not specifically the- people, but a type of guest who think that they're possibly better than they are no not better than they are that's that's the wrong phrasing but i've sort of moved into that higher atmosphere where they think they're possibly on a level with movie stars which they should be but but at the end end of the day taking themselves away from their core audience kind of thing yeah yeah we're just putting that barrier in we're just doing like cool pictures to entertain each other trying to make a few quid as soon as yeah. you think you're the next robert downey jr then you're only fooling yourself that's it <laughs> it's not what comics should be either no no i mean i've always said that you know troops is an event that's nostalgic for an event that i was never old enough to go to right yeah Back when comic cons were what would be considered the big name creators now just getting together in a basement of a hotel yeah and engaging with their fans but even then if you got into a time machine and went back to those cons you might realize that they're not what you thought they i know it's it's very much you know it's view of a the the nearest thing i never saw kind of thing exactly yeah the nearest thing that you could get to that idea of what you thought they could be is what you're creating now with troops yeah so you're you're as near to your ideal as you could ever be that's it and i mean let's face it the British comics industry now is small press. You've got your 2000 AD and a couple of others, which is fair enough. I'm not taking anything away from them, but the heart and soul of this comics industry in the UK is the small press stuff. Yeah, definitely. And like you know, Browse and Avery Hill. Yeah. And that sort of thing. And that's where the passion is. Yeah, the passion and the heart is always in the, um, it's kind of in the outsider group, it's in the indie. Because you'll have, in in every industry, you'll have your massive corporation that owns everything, which puts out really good stuff. But being part of that machine saps you of all energy and creativity. So you just have have to look around it and see what the indies are doing. And that's where the new ideas will come from. That's it. Where you're more concerned with hitting the bottom line than, than you are the creative endeavor of it all. And... Like I say, it's it's a bit hipster ideology to a certain degree, but I genuinely think that that's where the passion is. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, you've 
you've got to have a little bit of hipster ideology just don't crawl up your own ass that's that's that's, well, yeah, that's, that's where the problem lies yeah. but i mean it's like with you you know in a different world where the bottom line mattered you'd have had those six issues of beast hunting battle badges out within a few weeks yeah but even then you know i can i have to remind myself i can put as much effort in as i like into battle badges but at the end of the day my audience is still small yeah Only people really care about it so i could you know give up the day job drawing for all different sorts of people and just concentrate on that rush out into the streets and say to everyone it's finished and no one's gonna give a crap <laughs> you know like all the, a pigeon will fly past and an old granny might look at me and think i'm crazy and she'd be right to do so because i would be crazy because it's just you know it's it's my thing and and while i'm creating it it seems like oh gosh this is really important of course everyone's creation is important to them but at the end of the day it it only really matters a lot to us and a small group that we manage to entertain with it and that's cool that's enough that's it i mean that's what i always loved about comics is that you know in their heyday they were selling the millions but we were still small individual groups of people of course who just genuinely loved this thing yep it's always been a bit of an outsider thing even as big as it could be the same going back to wrestling as big as wrestling is it's still that slightly geeky outsider group thing and dungeons and dragons as well another love of mine even though it's got bigger now it's still an outsider geeky thing to do that's it and it's all the more cool for it. What's that? I mean, you look at superheroes with the movies, superheroes rather than comics. Superheroes have never been bigger. Yeah, yeah, definitely. They're huge. Definitely. Um, with regards to the movies, it doesn't yeah. necessarily mean everyone's out buying comics. <laughs> no, that's it. But, but I'd much rather be in that small group of people who have a genuine, passionate love for the thing. Yeah. Then be in a wider group that's kind of like, yeah, they're kind of all right. They entertain me for a bit. It's why um, another thing uh, about why comics, the reason why I love them, is you can make them as one person. Yeah. If you're making a movie or doing music or other things like that, you, you generally need to get someone else involved to help you with the process. And, and after a little while, if it takes you a couple of years to put this book together, one of you is going to get either pissed off or bored or wander off. Whereas yeah. with comics, you can just sit down with your own crazy idea and think it's going to take you a crazy amount of time. But all you need is just the drive and the inspiration and yourself to put it together. Yeah. And I mean, that makes sense because they've always been something you can enjoy by yourself. Yeah. It's very rare. You get a group of people reading a comic out loud together. Yeah. <laughs> kind of thing so kind of weird <laughs> perhaps that's what we should do at the next true believers yeah Start, have a big table read of a comic start reading out some hellboy in a circle around the table you never know what you might summon i was gonna say you might summon a demon yeah <laughs> <laughs> oh, at least we get in the paper probably yeah it's very true good publicity it'd still be photos of cosplayers <laughs> of course it would. and a wall of uh, Funko Pops well not a true believers probably <laughs> everywhere else is. I think like buildings in the streets are now made of walls of Funko Pops I think you're probably right I mean I've got nothing against them personally but I, there's nothing more soul destroying than just walls of the bastard things yeah I, I, I think they're, they're fun little things I just know in say 150 years when uh, the seas have all dried up and 
we've all died off because of eco disaster. There'll just be a massive landscape of these little Funko Pops and the red sun glaring down on them. That's it. Billions of years in the future, aliens will come down and be like, look, they were all like these tiny, weird, fat headed things. (laughs) This is how they died and preserved perfectly. (laughs) They were all small, little, big headed representations of characters from the Big Bang Theory. So about a million of them look like this Deadpool guy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh dear. The future. <laughs> so sort of finishing it off then kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to ask for a couple of recommendations. What Funko Pops do you recommend people? No. <laughs> <laughs> well, of course, you've got to have a Stan Lee, three Spider-Mans. <laughs> 17 different groups all in the bowl. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, recommendations. Uh, well, so sort of either comics that have inspired you. I mean, we've talked, touched on a couple anyway, kind of thing. Or you know, yeah. you'd recommend people should read if they want to go out and create comics or whatever. Well, I or just what you're reading at the moment, whichever. Um, well, I, I definitely would recommend Bone, the collected Bone, just as a, a masterpiece of of storytelling. Same with Usagi Yojimbo. I mean, that's a big saga to get into. Um, what's great about it is that you can pretty much dip in at any point with Usagi Yojimbo. He's a wandering rabbit samurai, so you can just join him on the next part of his wandering adventure. Um, it doesn't really matter if you haven't read the first 16 graphic novels. You could pick up book 17, and the way he tells the story, you get yeah. enough from it you know, straight away. I think um, that's the beauty that it's been him creating it all along as well. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah, nobody coming in and being like, I kind of like what he did, but I want to do this with it. Well, yeah, it's consistency of style, it's consistency of storytelling, um, and he just get if he just gets slightly better and better, but it never really changes, which is so comforting when you just pick up one of the many graphic novels and you're back in, you know, feudal Japan, following the samurai, having awesome samurai battles. That's it, and I mean that was Ninja Turtles opened the door for me for. Yusagi Ojimbo. Yeah, that's definitely. Yeah. Um, I mean, Stan was good friends with Peter Laird. They knew each other through the conventions at the time. And I, I can't remember who came first. I think they might have came at roughly the same time. Quite a big indie anthropomorphic boom in the 80s. Um, I just remember him popping up in the cartoon. Yes. Yeah, that's right. Like, who's this yeah. fucking samurai rabbit? And then as I got into comics, I discovered that he wasn't a Ninja Turtles character. Yeah, he was his own thing that they just brought into the cartoon. Did you ever see the episodes of that uh, new CGI Nickelodeon series? Yes, with with Usagi in. Yeah, they were fantastic. That Nickelodeon series, once you can get past the animation, which was I found really jarring to begin with. Right, that's pretty much the animated equivalent of what IDW were doing. Yeah, it was incorporating a... so much different stuff, and that last series, the Tales of the Ninja Turtles, where they did yes. this thing, it's really yeah. annoyed me. They've never released the Usagi Ojimbo ones on DVD. Oh right, they've released everything but those last few episodes. So yeah. the ones with like Raph in the Wasteland and everything. Yeah, yeah, I definitely would snap out those Usagi ones if they came out as a collected DVD. They were fantastic. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure why they've never come, but because they released Maybe... another territories, I should just bought yeah. them really. But but there's a lot of um love for the whole of the ninja turtles history in that series they really do love every part of everything that's ninja turtles and and they put it into their series with so much creativity and care 
It was a really good series. That's it. It was never a case of let's a bit like the IGW ones. It was never. It's never been a case of let's shoehorn in. Yeah. That's whoever what... for whatever reason kind of thing. I would. I definitely recommend the City Fall story arc of the new IDW Turtles. That was great. Because that's Mateus Santoloco is the art on, artist on that. And he's just one of the most amazing um, comic artists that I've seen in my life. You know, the way that he puts together action and a fight scene. And then he can do it all. You know, the emotion in the characters... Uh, the detail in his pictures, but never so detailed it, it starts to get static. It just yeah. flows. And he's hugely inf- inspired by um, Katsuhiro Tomo, who did Akira. And those original six Akira graphic novels, I d- would recommend those to anybody. I mean, that's as close as I've ever felt of watching a film while reading a comic. Yeah. The way he directs and put panels down on a page is so cinematic. It's fantastic. That's it, and weirdly a way that cinema could never be. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's what I, always fills me with a cold dread when they keep talking about doing a live-action Akira. I think that comes back to like um, what I said earlier with regards to when you're reading a comic, you can set the pace yourself. Yeah. And also, if it's a black-and-white comic, you set the colour yourself. Yeah. After a while, you forget you're reading black-and-white, and you put the colours on in your mind. A bit like when you watch a black-and-white movie, a classic black-and-white movie. It's only later when you look back at a still from it, and you're like, oh, yeah, that was all in black and white, but in my head, like the classic Frankenstein. I've always, yeah. in my head, got muted colour palettes on that and atmospheric colours to it, but then I'll see a still from it. I'm like, oh, it's, it's a black and white movie. Yeah, there's a couple. High Noon, I always forget, is black and white. And, and um, like, Seven Samurai, those old, um, yeah, uh, like, Ronin movies and things like that. So I, I think part of that with um, with definitely Akira is that it's so engrossing, so atmospheric, but also because it's so clean with its with the black and white artwork, you can put so much in there while you're reading it as well as what you get off the page. Yeah, but yeah, that that's an absolute masterpiece. Um, I'm also quite a, a big fan and would recommend the old. Um, Gilbert Shelton's Freak Brothers comics. You ever read any oh, of those? I've not, no. No, it's like the um, old underground comics from the 60s. And it's about three stoners in America, and they're just these little sort of crazy adventures they go on. But again, it goes back to that freedom of storytelling. Obviously, because it's underground press, they can do whatever they like, tell whatever stories they want, and it's just fun. The freedom and the fun comes through those pages. This guy is just sat down and telling these crazy stories about losers in I think, San Francisco, where it's based. Um, and it's just that sort of one man creating these little stories with a biro and paper and just doing really good work. Awesome. Yeah, I've read like some of that. Under- like the, I've got a couple of crumb books. Yeah, crumb, Crumb's good. I mean, he, which Crumb like, I find very hit and miss for me. Some of it. It's not to my taste, if that makes sense, but I can appreciate. Yeah, yeah, he's definitely work. Ex- he's definitely expressive, and sometimes you kind of wish he wasn't expressing what he's expressing. Yeah. But as an art form, um, I mean, it, it's just brilliant what he's doing. He's putting what's inside his heart and soul. He's bearing it all onto the page, 
and some of it is ugly and some of it is slightly unacceptable, especially now, a bit more PC. But that is art. You know, sometimes art isn't that, you know, the insides of people's minds and hearts isn't that nice. No, but, that's it. It's... But it works as an art form. It's, it's so good. And and also, I know everyone recommends it, but Mouse. Mouse is just a masterpiece. Yes, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Just like, I mean, the um, the stark reality of that book when it's sort of mice and cats and like silly anthropomorphizing these these real issues, you, you think, oh, is this going to do it justice? And then by the end of it, you're, you're like, whoa, that was that was incredible. That's, that's another one that's sort of beautiful in its, in its simplicity in the best possible way. Yeah. Kind yeah. of thing. And like I said, it always sounds like damning with faint praise, doesn't it? But... <laughs> yeah. Uh, and on the um on the indie scene, there's um there's a comic called Circuside um by Graham Puttock. Yeah. Um and he there's a really lovely dark style to his drawings, very scratchy. And there's an atmosphere to it. It kind of reminds me of um, like a David Lynch film or League of League of Gentlemen, because there's a bit, bit of a dark humour to it as well. But it's just the way he tells stories. Um, I really love his work. I think it's fantastic. Really good stuff. So if you ever see him at, um, at a con, definitely pick up his stuff. I think he's he's recently done one called Dog Jaw, which is like a, a Wild West um, story. But well. Uh, yeah, his stuff's great. I think he might be at Troops again this year. Oh, cool. I, used to, I'm, I might be wrong, but I'm 99.9% sure. I'm usually pretty good at who's there and who isn't. So. But it's one of those things as well with recommendations. Generally, I would say to people, go to um, Comic-Cons, go, go to indie shows and just see what's on those tables. I'd just recommend that. Go and see what ideas are out there, what's you know, popping up and what's being created. That's it. I mean, I've always said I much prefer buying the things from people face-to-face at their table than off their website kind of thing. As backward as that sounds sometimes. <laughs> but yeah, just to yeah. see them and speak to them and get a feel for what they feel of for what they've created kind of thing. Yeah, sure, definitely, yeah. Yeah, you definitely get that sort of personal touch you get from talking to someone and meeting them. It helps you to also understand what they're putting on the page. So when you read it, you think back to what they were saying when you were talking to them. It just creates that connection. That's it. It's something you sort of used to get a little bit in the early days of Kickstarter, but it seemed to be in the updates. People used to put a lot of effort into their updates. I'm not saying people don't anymore, but there's certainly a few that I've backed where the updates have just been like, yeah, it arrived. Here's a photo. <laughs> right yeah and it I sort think... of lost that little bit of passion for it kind of thing because i mean a kickstarter is a full-time job anyway yes I, yeah. I know from the one we did to kickstart troops which yeah you know i i don't like to talk about it <laughs> flashbacks to it all well that's the thing people say to me um is battle badges a kickstarter thing uh, and i say well no i just do it off my own back and then sell it and try and recoup my costs rather than do the kickstarter thing just because I need to put all the energy I've got into making the thing first rather than all the energy that's taken by Kickstarter and then sitting down and trying to create it afterwards. Well, that's it. It's like with me with the robot thing. I just did a couple of days overtime to cover the print costs. Yeah. And, you know, it's still a, 
extra couple hundred pounds to put up in one go kind of thing. But yeah, but that would drip back in as you, you know, that's it. That's what I, time. I, I've thought a bit more of, you know, I put money in a bank account, I might lose a little bit of it, but at the same time, I'll get a drip feed of money coming in every so often kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So, and also, you know, if you're not out drinking every weekend or buying, you know, computer games or everything like that, then it's just your hobby that you're putting your money into a little pouch instead well that's it and it's you know i mean I, you I might be out drinking i believe anyway. in it enough to sort of put my own money in it kind of thing yeah yeah you do have to have a certain amount of belief but just don't don't go crazy with it and you know start thinking you're gonna pay the mortgage doing it <laughs> yeah don't don't be like that's like i've ordered ten thousand copies i've quit my job yeah well that's the, another amazing thing about the first turtles comic was um they did order like you know a couple of thousands of the first print and took it to comic cons and it was just a massive hit you know it it worked and they they sold them all yeah it's they just, had to get a reprint quite quickly didn't they they did yeah their first sold it in shops but from direct their, market or whatever it was but really quickly I think they got a loan from Kevin Eastman's uncle for the first printing, printed up a you know a few thousand, and went and, and flogged them all, and then had to print more, and it just ran from there. But it's just that thing of of having an idea that you like, going with it, you know, riding that wave of energy, trying to keep it relatively sim- like realistic with regards to what you're spending on it, and just building a following over time, really. Yeah, that's it, and I mean printing thousands of copies of your book like they did that's a uh that's a rarity rather than uh yeah the norm kind of thing yeah well I, <laughs> for anybody who's thinking i was only going to get 50 printed but now with that i'll get about twenty thousand. <laughs> but then saying that back then you know that might have been the minimum run maybe you could only yeah, get a slot of the printer for that that because that was before you know digital printing and and smaller print runs and things but yeah, uh, but yeah that's I think I'd have nightmares. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm sure they they kind of did a bit, but they were you know young and reckless, and and it all well, worked it. out. <laughs> they were they were in the ideal position to do it. Where yeah, yeah. You know, they had the rest of their lives to correct the mistake. Kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, but so speaking of correcting mistakes, where can people? Find... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I have no other link. Speaking of of needing to make some money back for all that printing cost. That's it. Uh, (laughs) Where can people find your line and what, if any, upcoming cons have you got? Well, um, obviously, uh, Battle Badgers is on Facebook, is on Twitter, also on Instagram. But I find it harder to access my Instagram account because I've just got a little old tablet thing, which seems to be dying more and more every day. So um, Facebook and Twitter are the main places to go and see updates and artwork that I'm working on. Um, Also, if you want to order a copy, drop me a message through Facebook or go to the website. Uh, There's a link to an Etsy page on there that you can order the books through Etsy. It's cheaper if you come straight to me at Facebook because you haven't got all the extra, (laughs) you know, Etsy charges and that. But however you want to do it. Um, And convention wise, obviously, you've got the mighty Troobes in the new year. Um, yes quite good that one um there's a uh one in taunton which is great for me it's just down the road for me literally (laughs) come out of my flat across the road and there's going to be one in the um in the library in taunton i think there's also another one 
going to be in Taunton in April, and I'm trying to organise to be at the Swansea Con next year. Oh, cool. Yeah, because I've heard quite a few good things about that. And also, I, I lived in Swansea for like three or four years, so it'll be good to go back and stomp the old grounds. Is that the one that, is it Ricky runs yeah. on? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he's he's often at Troobs and yes. I've, I've seen him at um, other ones. But um, yeah, I shall probably start looking at booking more up as we get nearer to Christmas and the new year and as more you know announced and released. Um, I shall hopefully do maybe five or six next year. Hopefully. But it's best to keep an eye on the Facebook page and Twitter. I'll always announce on there if I'm going to be at a, a convention. Cool. And yeah, awesome. Um, is Beast Hunt Battle Badgers 5 out yet, or is that coming soon? Book 5 is out, yes. I've got a little, well, I've got a few boxes fresh from the printers next to my desk here. Awesome. Um, it, it is now available to order through Facebook or get it from the Etsy page or just drop me a message. Um, yeah, it's all printed up, shiny and lovely. I need to put more promotional stuff on the Facebook page, letting people know that it's available, actually. I put something up last Friday, just a little sort of poster. But like everything with um, Facebook, and we've all got busy lives, you tend to have to see something two or three times before it truly sinks in. Yeah, that's it. It's, <laughs> it's that I'm going to be in comic shops as well, because I always get a kick when I go into Proud Lion in Cheltenham and they've got yeah, Standing battle badgers in there. Yeah, ages section. It's going to be in um, Excelsior in Bristol. It will be in Crackers in Taunton, and I will give Proud Lion a little nudge to let them know that it's available. Or when I put stuff up on Facebook, they might give me a nudge and say, "Can we have some?" But yeah, I'm sure I, I shall send some up that way. Um, yeah, so it's it's kind of round and about in places. Awesome. If you know where to look. <laughs> That's it. If you have the map. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, if you know the secret words to say on the street, they'll point you in the right direction. It's, it's like Mysterious Seats of Gold, jump in your golden condor. Yeah, oh, that was a great cartoon. <laughs> I love that cartoon. Uh, one, of the, one of the best theme songs. Yeah, I um, tracked down the soundtrack. And... Oh, cool. I didn't know there was a whole soundtrack. I've just got the theme song on my iPod. <laughs> they gave it away free with if you bought the box set from a certain shop, but I'd obviously oh, missed that one. And um, right. so I bought it secondhand off somebody for about 30 quid, but I was like, it's totally worth it. Yeah. <laughs> just there's... for that one song. Well, there's certain things that are just such a part of your childhood. You're like, I need that song in my life. It's like well, me with a Labyrinth soundtrack. Yeah. It's just classic. It was Bowie, so it's already gold. That's it. <laughs> So, I'm not allowed to talk about Labyrinth because me and Andy disagree on it. Oh, I'm not a fan, unfortunately. Oh, never mind. Yeah, there are people like you out there. <laughs> I know, I'm one of them. It was Bowie's cold piece, wasn't it? It was too much for you. It, yeah, yeah, it drew the attention. It drew the eye too much. <laughs> <laughs> and on that bombshell. Yeah, and on Bowie's cold piece, let's go to bed. <laughs> Cheers to that, Steve. All right, have a good one, Stuart. And see you, you, see ya. Bye. See you at Troops. Yes, you will. <laughs> Bye. See ya. And that was episode 10 of Why Comics. I'd like to thank Steve for coming on and answering the big question and talking comics with me. Uh, I really enjoyed chatting to him. I hope you guys enjoyed listening to it. Um, you can find all the links for where to find Steve online and everything else he mentioned in the show notes. Uh, so, yeah, if you just check those out, if you missed them in the episode. 
now a little housekeeping kind of thing. Um, first off, after launching at Nottingham Comic Con this past Saturday, which was amazing, huge congrats to Kevin Kelbrett and all of their team putting on another great show. Um, if you haven't checked out Nottingham Comic Con yet, I recommend looking out for it next year. Uh, it's superb. But yeah, after launching there with both March of the Robot, Long Walk Home, and Hello to Jason Isaacs, both of those comics are now available on the True Believers website at oktruebelievers.com forward slash comics. And you can find them both on there. It's £5 for robots, £2 for Jason Isaacs. There's £1 posting packaging on March and 50p on Jason Isaacs. Um, yeah, just a little something to help towards the postage. Um, uh, yeah, if you are able to buy it or you like the look of them or, you know, Whatever, um, I'd be hugely grateful to anybody, and thank you to everybody who bought it at Nottingham Comic Con. It means so much to me, them being my first ones and putting them out there and that sort of thing. Um, if you prefer to just read digitally and not buy, if you've got a Comic House subscription, both of those comics are available to read digitally exclusively on Comic House. They're not going to be digitally anywhere else. Uh, everything I do digitally is going to go on to Comic House. Uh, like I say, 100% exclusively there. Um, so yeah, you can check that out at comichouse.com where you can get a 14 day free trial and yeah, sign up for the app and you'll find those two, both Tales from Beyond Infinity and just a whole host of other small press and indie comics on there. It's definitely worth it. I think it's £3 a month it works out as for just a whole library of awesome comics. Uh, yeah, so that's a free ad for Comic House. Uh, in the meantime, you can find... The Nerds Who Haunt Themselves online as uh, at Facebook, where we are www.facebook.com forward slash haunted nerds. On Twitter as at OKTrueBelievers. Uh, on the website, the True Believers website, OKTrueBelievers.com, you can find all the previous podcasts. Like I said before, my comics, Troops News, all that sort of stuff. Troops News is going to be kicking off soon. Now that Nottingham's out of the way and Thought Bubble's almost done, that's it. We've got an open field to just plug True Believers. Uh, with tickets going on sale on the 29th of November as well. Expect November to be the month of announcements. Um, yeah, you can find the podcast on Podbean, so that's hauntednerds.podbean.com, where you can follow us. You can also find us on iTunes, Spotify. Uh, if you like what you listen to, any help spreading the word is awesome. If you fancy leaving a review, that's cool. Uh, I know everybody asks you to leave reviews, so if you fancy it, that'd be awesome. If not, not to worry. Um, yeah, if you are interested in me and what I do, uh, it's not that interesting, but anyway, uh, you can find me on Twitter as at TokenNerd, on Instagram as Stuart Thinks He Can Draw, and on Facebook as Facebook.com forward slash Stuart Can't Draw, which is where I usually post up all my artwork and that sort of thing. So if you fancy a giggle or to feel better about your own work, go there and have a look. Uh, and that's it. I'll be back next week with another episode of Why Comics, barring any major disasters. And uh, yeah, until then, this has been a Nerds Who Haunt Themselves production, and I've been Stuart Moraine. And until next time, read some awesome comics, create some awesome things, and keep spreading the four-colour word. Thanks for listening. Bye. <laughs>